Well, if you haven't done so already, please turn in your copy of God's totally trustworthy and true word to us. Turn to Genesis 43. If you are using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on the bottom of page 36. Bottom of page 36 of the Bibles provided. Our strength arises from our sense of weakness. So declared James Smith in 1860. In a wonderful meditation by James Smith entitled Gleams of Grace, uh, Smith was trying to express something of the sweetness of of a life of simple, active, and absolute dependence on Jesus. We live in a very independent era, but one of the basic tenets of Christianity is that if we are to be saved, we must depend entirely upon Jesus for our eternal hope and future. So James Smith wrote this in that at uh, peace, we must come to Christ for all that we need, with all that troubles us, and through all that opposes our progress. We must make Jesus our strength as well as our righteousness, and look to him as a foundation, a fountain to supply us, as well as a foundation to support us. As we study Genesis 43 together this morning, it's my prayer that we would indeed come to depend more and more upon the might and mercy of Jesus. We are in the middle of a final, the final major section of the book of Genesis, which focuses on God reconciling Joseph to the brothers who sold him into slavery and reuniting Joseph with his father, Jacob. As we begin to think uh, about this text, uh, we should remember last week uh, that God was working on the 12 sons and Jacob while he was working his purposes out in and through them. All of what has transpired has been a part of God's sovereign plan to rescue Jacob and his family from death in the famine. Uh, The rescue and reconciliation and reunion of this family is part of the grand story of redemption that God is working out in the whole of the Bible, where he rescues him, reconciles, reunites sinners to himself. It's part of this grand story because in this family, through the line of this family, the Messiah is going to come. In Genesis 43, we, we see... God lead this family down two more steps toward reconciliation and reunion. In the first half of the chapter, we see God lead Jacob to trust his power. And Jacob, he ends up praying that God Almighty would be merciful to his sons. And then in the second half of the chapter, we see God lead Joseph to show compassion toward those who have sinned against him. God's compassionate mercy is mentioned in actually both scenes, and it's really the heartbeat of this chapter. The teaching of this text is quite simple. When God brings about rescue and reconciliation in the lives of his people, he makes them depend upon his might and display his mercy. So, beloved, here's the sermon in a sentence. God calls you to depend upon his might and display his mercy. God calls you to depend upon his might and display his mercy. There should be a full outline provided there in the bulletin that may help you to follow along. Let's begin with the first point. God makes us depend upon his might. Here we're going to be examining Genesis 43 verses 1 to 15. Follow along as I read Genesis 43 verses 1 to 15. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to them, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, 
we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have returned, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Well, as we consider these verses, we need to remember where we left off in Genesis 42 and where we're picking up. Remember, Joseph had tested his brothers in a number of ways. Uh, Joseph had held Simeon in prison. Uh, Joseph demanded that they return with their brother, their youngest brother, Benjamin. And Joseph sent them back actually with their silver. Joseph was setting up the same situation that they had faced years before. They returned to their father without a brother and with a bag full of money. Joseph wanted to know if they would desert their brother Simeon and deceive their father like they did before when they had sold him into slavery in Egypt. At this time, they were honest with their father, Jacob, but Jacob refused to send Benjamin down. And in verses 1 and 2, the Lord steps in to drive Jacob to depend upon him. The famine didn't let up, and the food ran out. I wonder, as you, you look at those first two verses, do you wonder, how is it that Jacob hasn't done anything to rescue his son from prison? I mean, this is how self-focused Jacob is. And only the Lord can pull him out of this uh, quagmire. God, I think, designed the length and the severity of the famine in part to work on Jacob's heart. I mean, the family needs to act if they're going to survive and if Simeon is going to be rescued from the slammer. Right? God's design through the length and the severity of the famine is to bring Jacob out of his despondency and into dependence. I wonder, has God ever done something like that in your life? Is God doing something like that in your life? Have you ever been so absorbed with living your own way, pursuing your own agenda, perhaps even demanding that God bow to your desires and to your plans? Jacob wants things to go according to his plan, without Benjamin. But God is at work. He's pressing 
Jacob to depend upon him. Is God doing that in your life? Has he done something like that in his merciful might toward you? I mean, maybe through pressures and people, God has said to you, beloved, I'm not going to allow you to continue down this path. It's destructive. I love you so much that I'm going to pull you up and out of this circumstance. I'm actually going to bend your will and conform it to mine so that you depend upon heavenly wisdom and not on human wisdom. I want you to know that you can trust me with your whole heart and life. Has God, through different people and pressures, pressed you into depending upon him like that? Sometimes God brings us to depend upon him through situations which there's no other way out. And you need to recognize that as a kindness of the Lord. It's a kindness that God does not give you everything you want. A kindness that God makes you give up things to him. A kindness of God to bring you to depend upon him. It should show you that he actually loves you even better than you try to love yourself. There's a problem, of course, with this request from Jacob. The brothers can't just go down to Egypt and buy food. And Judah courageously reasons with his father there in verses 3 to 5. At least three times in the space of three verses, Judah mentions that Benjamin will have to go with them. The repetition of this reality in Judah's words shows us what a barrier this is for Jacob. Chapter 42 closed with, uh, with Jacob emphatically declaring that he would not let Benjamin go. And Judah makes clear that any attempt to buy food without Benjamin going with them to Egypt would be in vain. This is an important development as uh, Judah, in time, would become the leader of the brothers. Judah will be the one who receives the blessing of being the son and the tribe of Israel through whom the line of the Messiah would travel. Judah is stepping into that leadership role. Jacob, also called Israel there in verse 6, he rebukes Judah and the brothers. Look at how self-centered he is. Why do you treat me so badly? He cries. Do you see that self-centeredness from Judah, or Jacob? Jacob doesn't understand that if he gives up this one son, he'll actually receive all of his sons back. Jacob is clutching onto, he's clinging on to Benjamin. Think about who Jacob is, what, what we've seen transpire in his life in the book of Genesis. Where is the patriarch who back in Genesis 32 let all of his family go to meet Esau and held on to God and didn't let go? Where's that kind of dependence upon God? That's the kind of dependence that God is going to bring Jacob to through this difficulty. Beloved, God has a way of kind of loosening our grip on things and people we love more than him. God has a way of bringing you to depend upon him when you've put all of your hopes on someone else. God is jealous for your love, and he loves to prove himself trustworthy and dependable to you. The brother's response there to Jacob in verse 7 is illuminating. We're given more detail that we didn't get back in Genesis 42 when the brothers first brought a report back to their father. Unsurprisingly, we see that Joseph was actually pressing them for details about their family during his kind of interrogation when he was speaking roughly to them. The brothers, they, they have really an honest response to their father, don't they? Uh, at the time, they thought it was in their best interest to really disclose all of the information that Joseph was pumping them for. How could they have known that Joseph would use it against them? They weren't at fault for his demand. They couldn't have known that in order to free Simeon, Joseph would demand that they bring Benjamin with them. Once again, we see Judah. He steps into the light there in verses 8 to 10. Judah's pledge there to Jacob 
is so unlike Reuben's terrible suggestion at the end of chapter 42. You remember there in Genesis 42 that Reuben offered that Jacob kill two of his sons in order to go uh, and bring um, Benjamin, to, to rescue Simeon and bring Benjamin back. But that's, that's not at all what Judah offers here, is it? Notice first how Judah refers to Benjamin as the boy there in verse 8. Do you see it? This is actually a term of affection and endearment. Judah knows how much Jacob loves his son. He recognizes that this is a sensitive subject. And through this term of endearment, Judah communicates to Jacob that he cares for Benjamin too. Beloved, you should learn from Judah here. As you counsel others, it is important to be compassionate and caring. Uh, notice, though, that compassion and care don't overtake Judah's convictions. Right? He still speaks a hard truth to Jacob. The boy must go or we don't go. We live in a day where we are tempted to allow our compassion to mute and overrule our convictions. We want to be sympathetic and speak. The, the Christian way of living is speaking the truth in love. The Christian way of living is expressing our compassion and our convictions. It means telling others that they are wrong before God and that they can be made right through the Lord Jesus Christ. Being a faithful presence in this world is not merely being present and holding our peace, but it also includes proclaiming our faith in our works and in our words. Judah, he gently reminds his father that this is a matter of life and death. You see those words there, that we may live and not die in verse 8? They were Jacob's words back in Genesis chapter 42, verse 2. Judah is saying, Dad, you've said it yourself. This is a matter of life and death. We have to do something. Judah, he presses his appeal further. He reminds Jacob that everyone he loves is endangered by this famine. Inaction at this point will endanger Jacob. It will endanger his sons. It will endanger those little ones, his grandchildren. Judah is attempting to respectfully pull Jacob out of his self-pity to see his responsibility to the whole family. This gentle goading from Judah should remind Jacob of the promises of God. God promised Jacob that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And God has begun to fulfill his promises. And Jacob shouldn't neglect his duty to care for the family that God has given to him. Do you see how in all of this, God is beginning to bring Jacob to the point where he's going to have to entrust everything and everyone to the sovereign God and his care. Moment by moment, word by word, it's becoming clear that Jacob is going to have to depend upon God to protect everything and everyone most precious to him. And notice what Judah says next there in verse 9. I will be a pledge of his safety. Judah puts his own life on the line. He doesn't offer the lives of others like Reuben did. He offers his own life. And this is a remarkably selfless act from a man who in the past had been consumed with his own selfish passions. You remember back in Genesis chapter 38 that Judah was the kind of man who never said no to any of his selfish desires. And then, through his sinful relationship with Tamar, God led Judah to a spirit of repentance and began to transform him. Judah was a man who would take and take and take. And now we see that he is a man who would give his life for another. He was willing to bear shame and blame forever, he says. In time, Judah not only pledged himself, but he procured the safety and the security of all of his brothers. Because he was successful in his mission, all of the brothers 
were rescued from the famine. They were reconciled and reunited. Doesn't Judah here remind you of our Lord Jesus? Remember that Jesus, he, he came from Judah's line. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, we're, we're told that Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Like Judah, didn't our Lord Jesus offer his own life for ours? Didn't our Lord Jesus pledge to bring us safely back into the Father's house in John chapter 14, verse 3? Didn't our Lord Jesus actually bear our sin and blame and shame on the cross? Didn't our Lord Jesus show us that he has the power to keep his pledge by rising from the dead? What a marvelous foreshadowing we have of our Savior here in Judah. But Judah, he, he takes one more step there in verse 10. He presses the urgency of the matter with his father. Jacob has delayed and delayed and delayed, and there can be no more delay. Have you ever recognized that sometimes in your life you actually make a decision by default when you delay? Judah's saying, we, we can't make that decision. We, we have to act. In verses 14 to 11, we get Jacob's plan and his prayer. Ultimately, by dire necessity and by passionate persuasion, Jacob has been brought to see that he must depend upon God. And that's what we get in his plan and prayer. You see, this plan includes bringing presents and double the money that they'll need to buy grain. The man spoke roughly to them the last time. Perhaps this gift will smooth out his severity. There's something also interesting about this gift. It recalls the time, actually, when Joseph was carried down to Egypt, when he was sold into slavery. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 25, we were told that the traders carrying Joseph down to Egypt were carrying gum and balm and myrrh, three of the things that are in this present. So it's like the brothers are actually following Joseph's path now. They're following in his footsteps down to Egypt with the same things that Joseph traveled with. Jacob, he also urged them to carry double the money. And the reason why is they're taking double the money is because uh, Jacob wants to make sure they pay back uh, what they had kind of taken from Egypt. It, it would have looked to the man from Jacob's vantage point, from all that he could see, like they had stolen if they turned up there again. So they needed to give that money back and then bring more money to buy grain, this grain they needed this time around. And after all of this, Jacob, you see there, he, he gives permission for the brothers to take Benjamin down to Egypt. Now, none of this preparation and planning diminishes Jacob's trust and dependence upon God. None of your practical planning diminishes your trust and dependence upon God. Uh, wasn't it uh, Oliver Cromwell who said something like, uh, trust God and keep your powder dry? Right? That's planning and, and preparation. It is good and right and wise for us to plan, to, to prepare in life. And we shouldn't pit that against trust and dependence upon God. Jacob knows that ultimately God is in charge. And if his sons are to come back, then it will be because of God's sovereign kindness. Jacob, he's being pressed into dependence upon God. And look at what he prays there in verse 14. Just read verse 14 again. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. Here Jacob prays to God Almighty, El Shaddai. The name for God here has appeared at critical points in the Genesis narrative, at decisive moments in this book. These sons, they will need mercy. They will need God, the Almighty God, to put mercy in the heart of the man. Because from all that Jacob can tell, these sons are deserving of imprisonment because of their theft. This would have 
to be a work that the might of the Almighty God performed. And what this name reveals about our God is that if He is Almighty, then there is nothing and no one who's mightier than Him. This name tells us that our God has irresistible power, inexhaustible power, infinite power. This is the God that Jacob has been brought to depend upon. Jacob's faith might be weak in his kind of apparent resignation, but his God and our God are strong. Christian, your faith might be weak, but your faith is in an almighty God. God has removed all of Jacob's earthly supports and comforts so that the only thing that he can do is fall back upon the almighty power of God. He's finally willing to submit to whatever God's will for him might be, including being bereaved of his children. Has, has God ever removed every conceivable obstacle or support and comfort in your life? Has he ever brought you to depend upon him, though you may have resisted at first? Do you trust God for protection? Do you trust God to protect you, to protect your children and your most treasured possessions? Do you trust God to protect your future, to lead and guide it? Or are you still leaning upon your power, clinging to other people? Beloved, Jacob is putting to death his desires. He didn't want to send Benjamin. Through God's sovereign pressures and Judah's gentle persuasion, Jacob's finally submitting and saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I wonder, have you said that to God? Have you given your life and all that you are in love over to God? As is often the way of our God, there must be a death if there is to be a resurrection. There must be a death to our selfish desires in order for us to truly depend upon Him in life. Jacob, he gives up everything and everyone to the mighty hands of God. Everything and everyone but God, has been removed from Jacob's grip. Jacob is left clinging to God again, and Jacob will receive back more than he had ever dared to hope in keeping his beloved son at home. God, he has brought Jacob to depend upon his might, and in the second half of this chapter, we see that God brings Joseph to display his mercy. This is our second point. God brings us to display his mercy. Follow along now as I read uh, Genesis 43, we'll, we'll read verse 15 again. Genesis 43, verse 15 to verse 34. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them, and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house, and slaughter an animal, and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him, and he brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid, because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us and make us his servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place where we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we've brought it again with us. And we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. 
Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when they had given their and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house they, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them, and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken uh, to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. In these verses, we see that uh, God answers Jacob's prayer for mercy and compassion as God brings Joseph to display mercy to his brothers. The scene begins there with the, the men bringing the present to Joseph. In verse 16, we see that God is in the middle of breaking Joseph's heart and bringing him to a heart of compassion. He, he looks upon Benjamin. He sees that these are men who care about their father. And he requests that his steward prepare a meal for them all. Now in the ancient Near East, sharing a meal together is a sign of, of communion, not a sign of conflict. That's normally our experience too. I mean, when was the last time you brought someone over to your home to have a meal with that you were angry with, you were in conflict with? We don't usually do that. We don't usually eat with those we're angry with. Joseph, he's taking a step toward his brothers, and the meal he is requesting is no small meal. He's requesting the steward slaughter an animal and make it ready for them to eat. This is going to be a magnificent meal. And the whole scene is really reminiscent of the parable of the lost son that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. You remember what happened when the lost son came home in the parable? Luke chapter 15, verse 23, the father said to his servants, Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. This is a joyful occasion. The, the father displayed mercy and compassion toward his sinful son. And here's Joseph displaying mercy and, compa mercy and compassion toward his brothers. <coughs> this reunion of the brothers is cause for celebration. But it takes preparation. And that's why I find it incredibly interesting that Moses, he goes to the, to the kind of length of telling us, the steward, he did as Joseph told him. I mean, we, we could have assumed that was going to happen. Joseph's a, a very powerful man. Everybody in Egypt does what he says. But Moses, he must give us that detail for a reason. And, and one thing that Moses must be teaching the people of Israel is that those under good authority are happy to serve their masters and do their will. From all we see from Joseph's life, he was, a, he was an excellent overseer and master. And Christian, I would just encourage you to be found faithful, like this steward is found faithful, carry out his master's request. And, and if you're a supervisor, be, be the kind of, of boss and employer that others delight to serve and, and carry out your, your orders and, and requests. In this meal, 
Joseph, he's, he's already planning to be merciful to his brothers, but his brothers aren't so sure, are they? And while the servant brings them to the house, in verse 18, the brothers' fears, they begin to, to rise in their hearts. They think that Joseph, Joseph is going to jump them, make them slaves, and take their donkeys. I mean, I just find that last line kind of comical. They're going to take my donkeys. Well, Joseph kind of seizing their donkeys kind of really should be the last of their concerns. But this is actually what fear does to us, right? I mean, fear disorients us. It distorts us from thinking through what ought to be our chief concerns and priorities. In verse 20, these brothers, they, they rouse up the courage to speak to Joseph's steward. They want to try to get ahead of the disaster they fear that's awaiting them. Uh, they explain what happened with the money in their sacks, how they're ready to pay it back. And then Joseph's stewards, he speaks some amazing words there. Just look at them there again. Verse 23, he replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Do you understand what the, the servant is saying here, the steward's saying? I mean, work backwards through his statements. Work from the end back to the beginning. The steward admits that he received their money. What's interesting is that the word that's used for money here uh, throughout, throughout the entire passage is, is really a word that could also be translated for silver. Right? Joseph was, of course, sold for silver. So all of these things are transpiring the lives of the brothers to call kind of attention to their consciences and their guilt. The money, the silver, came into the steward's possession. It passed through the steward's hands. Now, the steward, you see here, he doesn't tell the brothers that he put the money back into the sack, but that's exactly what he did back in Genesis 42, verse 25. So how can he say that your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sack for you? Well, here's how. Because he recognizes that ultimately it's God, the one true God who moved Joseph's heart to be generous to them and to return their money to their sacks. He, the steward, he was really the secondary cause of this grace gift, this merciful gift to them. But God was the first ultimate and primary cause. God was the first giver of this gift of grace. And here's the kicker. He speaks of their God and the God of their fathers. Did you notice that? And just think, what is an Egyptian, what was a steward in an Egyptian official's house doing talking about the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? What is he doing witnessing to them about their God's grace and generosity to them? Don't you think that Joseph must have been evangelizing his household, those under his authority? Joseph, he, he held on to those dreams and the promises of God through the pit and through the prison and into the palace. And he must have told others about Yahweh's plans and promises. And now here is this servant telling these sons of the great providence and power of their God. That's why this word of peace, literally shalom, is so breathtaking. The steward is saying to the brothers, you are at peace with my master because your debt, it's been paid. Your account's settled. And this is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has made peace for sinners like us by the blood of his cross. Jesus has paid our debt by his death on the cross. Friend, do you realize that? You have sinned against God. The God who created you, made you in his image. Your sins have mounted up to the heavens and you have incurred a debt that you could not repay. God does not accept our works for the payment of our debt. All of our good deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God. But the good news of the Bible is that God sent his son into the world to live the life that we've not lived, the life of perfect righteousness, 
Jesus died a substitutionary, sacrificial death on the cross in the place of sinners. Jesus was paid the wages of our sin in his death on the cross. He paid the debt that our sins incurred. And on the third day, Jesus was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins so that we might be reconciled to God, to know his mercy, and to be at peace with God. God in his mercy does not give us what our sins deserve. Instead, Jesus was paid those wages. And now we're at peace. All who turn from their sin and trust in the resurrected and reigning Christ will have peace with God. Friend, if you want to know more about what it means to have peace with God, to have your debt paid and settled by the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd love to speak with you more about that good news after the service. Find me at the door. Talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. This is good and glorious news that we have peace with God because our debts have been paid. And to prove that all is at peace in this passage, the steward not only brings Simeon out to meet them, but he also refreshes them as they prepare to dine with Joseph. Immense generosity and mercy are pouring out of Joseph through his steward. And all of this is no doubt coming from his careful direction. The steward gives them water to clean up, and he feeds their donkeys. Yes, those donkeys that they were so worried about losing. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. That's what must be coming to their hearts. And there in verse 26, we finally see them kind of presenting that presence to Joseph that they brought. And notice what they do. They bow down to him and notice the emphasis to the ground. Right? They're prostrate before Joseph. They did it back in Genesis chapter 42, verse 6. In verse 27, you see there that Joseph, he asks about their welfare, their well-being, literally their shalom. Joseph is displaying great compassion and care toward them. He's always displayed interest in others, right? Remember when Joseph was in prison? You remember the cupbearer and the baker? Genesis chapter 40, verse 7. Remember, Joseph noticed that their faces were downcast. And he asked them, what's, what's wrong? What's troubling you today? Yes, Joseph, he, he wants to know about their father, but he also wants to know about these brothers. Because despite all they have put Joseph through, he loves them. And he actually cares about their well-being. After asking about the shalom, their shalom, they ask, he asks about the shalom, the well-being of their father. And answering, once, once they answer again, they bow their heads down again. They prostrate themselves before him. Now, just, just think about this. Twice they do this. Do you remember how many dreams Joseph had back in Genesis 37? He had two dreams. And in both dreams, the brothers bowed down to him. And twice, we're seeing here that's happened. God is fulfilling Joseph's dreams. And Joseph, he continues these inquiries. His eyes have fallen upon his younger brother, the son of his very own mother, and he pronounces a benediction over Benjamin. God be gracious to you, my son. A benediction is a, it's a good word. You know that we conclude all of our services here with a benediction from God's word, a word of blessing to the people of God. And just looking at this benediction, what better word could there be than that God would show his unmerited, unearned favor to you? This phrase will become a part that Joseph Uttershed, this phrase can become part of the uh, ironic benediction that the high priest gives over the people of Israel in Numbers 6. It will be part of the, the greeting and benediction that the Apostle Paul gives in his letters to fearful churches. It's ultimately what our Lord Jesus says to us as God's children. Our great high priest soothes us with the truth that God shows us his grace, his unmerited, unearned favor toward us. This benediction 
it would have brought peace to the brother's heart, especially to the heart of Judah, as he put his life on the line for Benjamin. Here's, here's Joseph, the man. He's, he's treating him with care and kindness, generosity. Joseph's been displaying immense practical compassion and care for the brothers from the moment they arrived in Egypt. But in verse 30, he can't contain his love for Benjamin anymore. They did not mistreat Benjamin like Joseph was mistreated. Joseph, he has to rush out of the room to weep, to hide. Joseph, he should not be despised for his tears of tenderness, as Matthew Henry calls them. Sometimes it is good and right to weep. The Lord has deeply moved Joseph. Notice that in verse 30 we're told that for his compassion grew warm for his brother. That word for compassion is really the same word that's translated mercy back in verse 14 when Jacob prayed, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. God's actually answering Jacob's prayer right there in Joseph's heart, right before them. God was bringing Joseph to display mercy toward his brother. And the idea that Joseph's heart grew warm means that he was tender towards Benjamin. This type of display is how God speaks of his people in Hosea chapter 11, verse 8, where our God says, my compassion grows warm and tender. Christian, do you realize that this is how God feels toward you? He is not angry. He is affectionate. He is not cold. He is warm with love toward you. And this is something that you should be praying from this passage for your own heart. Pray the Lord would give you a warm and compassionate heart toward those you've been in conflict with, separated from, hostile toward, and have been hostile toward you. Pray that the Lord would give you a warm and compassionate heart toward those who've sinned against you. Pray that you would be forgiving, like we read in that parable earlier in the service. Pray that you would display the same compassion and mercy that God has displayed toward you. Joseph, he wept, and then he washed his face and he came out. He has to kind of compose himself. In Genesis chapter 43, verses 31 to 34, show us the fruit of God's might and mercy. Here are the brothers feasting, fellowshipping together. The last time we saw the brothers having a meal, do you remember what happened? When that happened? The last time the brothers were having a meal in the book of Genesis was when they had put Joseph in the pit and they left him there and they sat down to eat. Now, they all eat together. We've taken another step toward reconciliation and reunion. But as almost always seemed to be the case with Joseph, there's another twist in the tale. I mean, the twist in his tale is that everyone is in their proper place. Joseph, he ate by himself because of his status as the governor of Egypt. The Egyptians eat by themselves because uh, they thought it was detestable to eat with Hebrews, sinful ethnocentrism on their part. But none of that is actually the twist in the tale. The twist in the tale is that the brothers are all seated in age order. That's the point that verse 33 is making. This astonishes the brother. Now, supposedly, I've heard that some mathematician has done the, the, the calculation that there are roughly 39 million different combinations of 11. So the argument goes, right, that um, there's a 1 in 39 million chance that they would have been perfectly seated in birth order. Uh, but nothing is left to chance here, right? Joseph, he's guiding every step of this reconciliation process with his brothers. And Joseph, for his part, he's still testing his brothers. He is creating the tensions that often come in families due to kind of birth order. And we're told that, uh, that they, they looked at one another in amazement. That word for amazement can also actually carry with it a sense of alarm. They're, they're kind of unnerved by what's just happened. 
and where they've been seated. Maybe they're still fearing that God was going to bring distress upon them for the distress they brought upon Joseph. Joseph, he wants to know for sure if they despise Benjamin like they despised him. He gets them comfortable in this meal. He gets them to let their guard down. And then he starts piling up the favoritism towards Benjamin. That's why he sends five times the amount of food from his table to Benjamin. Will these brothers show the kind of envy and jealousy that they displayed toward him? Or will they accept God's, then God's providence? Sometimes life is uneven and unexplained. Instead of spending their strength grasping for what their brother has, would they now spend their strength grateful to God for each other? Would they too display compassion and care for one another? But all of this is foreshadowing, foreshadowing something else too. Their portions, they came from Joseph's table. The compassion that God has brought Joseph to display is but a foretaste of the truth that their survival and salvation from the family would come from Joseph. The scene closes with the brothers drinking and delighting in the fellowship that they have together. And this is all a part of the test that Joseph will put them through next. Joseph's cup, it will end up in Benjamin's sack. And this will be the opportune moment for the brothers to sell Benjamin off and for them to return home. Joseph, he was unaware of the work that the Lord had been doing in the brother's heart. He couldn't see it yet. God was restoring peace in their hearts and peace within their family. Jacob was displaying compassion and mercy toward his sons as he sent them all down to Egypt for food. The brothers were displaying compassion and mercy toward their father and his feelings through their care for Benjamin. Now Joseph's heart was beginning to fill with God's compassion and mercy. He was displaying that compassion. And soon, when the brothers passed the last test that Joseph would divulge, his love and compassion toward his brothers. As we conclude, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to recognize that you may not know what's going on in the hearts of someone else. You may not know what's, what God is doing, how he's working in them. You may not know what's going in the heart of someone who sinned against you, but you should trust and pray and hope, especially if they are a part of the family of God. You should trust and pray and hope that God has been at work in them just as he's been at work in you. If there is to be real reconciliation and reunion in broken relationships, you're going to have to display mercy and depend upon God for advancing his purposes in your heart and the hearts of others. The only way that you'll be able to do that is if you draw on the great compassion and care and mercy that God has shown you in Jesus Christ. Over and over again, God has proven to you that he's dependable, that he is mighty, and that he is full of mercy. Has he not given you what your sins deserve? No, he has poured out his wrath upon his son. He withheld his wrath from you and poured it out upon his son. His heart is warm toward you because he poured out his wrath upon his son. Survey God's record of faithfulness in history. He is not a God that fails. Survey the gentleness with which he has handled your heart throughout the whole course of your life. If you have come to know his might and mercy, then show it to the world that they might know his might and mercy too. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you do not leave us the same, but you change us. Sometimes it feels like you change us too slowly to be sure. 
but you are at work. You promise us that you are making us more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray and ask that today you would cause us to take more steps to depend upon your might and more steps to display your mercy and your glory and your honor. We pray and ask that you do these things for our good. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.